name's Rachel Jolly and welcome to Pod Academy and our third podcast in this series on journalism during the pandemic. In this episode, we look at what were the challenges that reporters were just not prepared for and what are the innovations and changes that come out of the crisis that will be significant for the years ahead. As the pandemic kicked off, the big challenge for many news organisations was to move their reporting teams to work completely remotely. So there was a massive shifting of equipment to people's homes. Suddenly, all sorts of questions were being asked about filing stories in different ways and how to cover stories while reducing risks of infection. Very few had experience covering a pandemic before, and so there was no obvious formula to follow. Then there were technical challenges of using new equipment or older equipment differently. At the same time, staff were off sick or on furlough, or newsrooms were cut back because of financial pressures. So what were the toughest obstacles? And what are the innovations that might make a difference to how journalism is done in the future? We talked to experts in the field to find out. First, we went to Milan, which was the epicentre of the pandemic in Italy. And we talked to Laura Silvia Battaglia, their coordinator and soon to be director of the Catholic University of Milan's journalism school and a journalist herself. We started by talking about the challenges for the journalism school and its students. Here in Milan, we started in February thinking about how it could be possible covering the pandemic, but we weren't really conscious about the challenges for our profession and also about the risks at the beginning. No one knew exactly what COVID-19 was. We started thinking about the safety for our students and the risks related to to cover these areas. So the challenges were very significant because we used to send our students around like every reporter does, but at the same time they are students. We taught them immediately trying to keep the distance, the safety distance, how to cover yourself using masks, using face shields. So we provided all all this stuff to our students. And we decided only the people that really want to go out for reporting, of course, covering themselves and try to avoid any risk and following the rules. Only the people that want, they will do it. And the others, they don't want, they will not do. And they will work as a desk for our publications. Richard Sambrook, a former director of Global News at the BBC and now director of the Centre for Journalism at Cardiff University, on why it was difficult for news organisations to know where to start. Nobody's had direct experience reporting a pandemic like this before, so I think it took quite a while for people to understand how to use the statistics, how to use the figures, what to expect from the science and so on as well. That took quite a lot of catching up with even for some of the health specialists there's the whole question of being remote from the community they serve because actually if anything that we've learned over the last few years is journalism has been too remote and needs to get closer to the community but you know the pandemic's come in and now got in the way of that as well so trying to report the impact you know in ways that are still covid compliant if you like is is difficult and challenging and quite complicated And then we've seen a huge rise in disinformation around COVID and around uh, vaccines and so on as well. Um, That, I think, is a very major challenge. Knowing which questions to ask the scientists was also a challenge. Here's Jean-Paul Matus, who teaches journalism and terrorism studies at the University Catholique du Louvain in Belgium. There was a lack of scientific expertise among the journalists. Very few media had people on staff who were able to 
They don't need to understand on their own what was happening, which everyone had trouble to do anyway, but even how to frame the issue, what kind of questions to to put to experts, how to select even the experts. I mean, because at the beginning, every expert seemed to be someone who had kind of a revealed truth because he was an expert. There's been too much focus on the national situation, misunderstanding the nature of the crisis, especially in Europe. I mean, in the Schengen area, for instance, you could see that if you didn't have a coordination between the various policies adopted by the national governments, it was just useless because people were moving from one side to the other. One of the big challenges for journalists was facing down some of the legislation, the more restrictive legislation that was brought in by governments to curtail media freedom. There were some successes, like where the Spanish government brought in a rule that journalists at press conferences had to put in their questions in advance. After 600 journalists signed a petition against this, the Spanish government changed its mind. And we also saw some success in Serbia, where the government had imposed a rule that information about COVID had to come from government sources only. When a journalist, Anna Lelich, went ahead and reported about shortages of PPE equipment in a hospital, she was arrested. After a massive public outcry, both nationally and internationally, the Serbian government rolled back that rule. But the difficult times for journalism also fostered some new responses and changes. Here's John Paul Matus again. I think a number of news organisations innovated that way by introducing new formats, uh, for instance, fact-checking. They did not only fact-checking, they introduced new ways of showing fact-checking, sort of better data journalism, podcast, explanatory journalism. So it was just not saying he or she is wrong, uh, right or wrong. No, it's just, it just was trying to go beyond that just simple form of fact-checking. There were innovations in a number of newspapers and, 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 and broadcast companies. I have seen comparison between a number of elitist newspapers in, in, in Europe, Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, El Pais, The Guardian, for instance, Le Monde, showing how, how they really moved ahead on a number of innovations that were part of their own digital tra- transformation and transition. But the COVID crisis really accelerated a number of trends, which at the end of the day would have been adopted, but much later. But even, for instance, the French government gave millions of support to the media to help them to get through the crisis. And they focused precisely on digital transition because it was part really of the model that was used during the crisis by the media to be to inform better their own public, to be much more graphic. I mean, to use other forms of journalism. When you see what the public expects from journalism today, according to a survey which was published two months ago during the Assise du Journalisme, which is the large gathering of French and francophone journalists that takes place every year in, in France, there were three expectations from the public. It was fact-checking. They, they, they really wanted to have journalists check the information flat on the internet. There was a question of having a form of solutions journalism in the sense of helping them to get away from this climate of exasperation, desperation, fatigue, and, and, and find solutions, even very concrete solutions sometimes. Like even like the local press did it quite well, like finding a solution to the transportation of people from school to, to, to home or from how to organize 
teleworking. There's been a lot of innovation in journalism. And I have seen also a number of interesting figures. The fact that a, a couple of uh, newspapers of record, I mean, have really, and, and media of record, have found a new life and a new economic model. Le Monde, for instance, announced that they have never had as many subscribers online, and it really helped them to, to uh, see the future with much more optimism without depending so much on online advertising. The pandemic has meant laying on extra equipment for some reporters in the field to protect them from attacks. Here's Kirsten McCudden, managing editor of the US Press Freedom Tracker. Reuters famously talked about around the election that they were gearing up their journalists to cover election protests. And that meant gear such as bulletproof vests, helmets. We've seen a lot of chemical irritants used by law enforcement across the entire U.S. So goggles, tight goggles that can keep tear gas or pepper balls, just chemical irritants out of your eyes. So we have, we know newsrooms are are making new decisions because of what has happened. Innovation comes in lots of different forms. Here's Damien Radcliffe of the University of Oregon and Larder Price of Sheffield Hallam University to talk about the rise of news podcasts. At the start of the pandemic, if you'd have said people will listen to more podcasts, I I think a lot of people would have been really surprised by that because the assumption I've found with a lot of my my colleagues is that people listen to podcasts whilst they're on the move. Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalists have actually noticed quite a significant growth in um, news podcasts. So these have become um, very, very popular, and especially among um, younger audiences. And the other thing that's happened, I think you've noted that before, people really are focusing on their local news outlets and supporting their um, local radio stations, local media, uh, and actually getting some paid subscriptions along with their other uh, types of subscription. It's obviously how we have seen large amounts of innovation all around the world, a lot of it driven by certainly in the first part of the pandemic, just a huge demand from audiences who wanted to know and understand and make sense of what was happening with this new novel coronavirus. And so the most obvious responses to that were publications launching coronavirus newsletters, we saw a ton of those, uh, and also COVID-19 themed podcasts, they've all been incredibly popular, have reached large audiences. And I think one of the challenges, one of the interesting questions now for news organisations is how do you maintain interest? So one example also is, is, is interesting is the rise in something that we call solutions um, journalism or constructive journalism, where the focus is not just on the on negative news and, you know, how how that's affecting our, our societies, but at the same time, obviously focused on accurate and truthful reporting, but at the same time offering a solution or alternative of how we can deal with um, with a specific problem. And I think that is becoming um, more popular among um, younger audiences. And a good example of that is the Guardian's upside pages that includes a number of stories, you know, what we can describe solution or constructive journalism. And I think that's a positive development in other countries in Bulgaria for example some media outlets introduced special sections which was um, news not on a pandemic included news not on a pandemic just to give people a little bit of extra space to to read about um, something else and to sort of 
you know, help us or perhaps feel less less helpless. Some newspapers, news websites also introduced these um, platforms where local people could swap information. So we found in France there where news sites said, well, this is your space, we've created it, but if people want to swap information that might help other people. And that's something fairly new, isn't it, that, that's come out of the pandemic and is, I think, makes people more connected to their local news organisation, but also gives them a bit of power in to do things themselves, which is quite, I thought that was quite interesting. In um, Eastern Europe, there was a trend um, for the past um, few years where news organisations have actually been uh, supplementing their income from events and conferences. And that, unfortunately, was affected, obviously, with restrictions posed during the pandemic, restrictions on, on gatherings and, and movements. But I'm seeing signs that some of them are actually starting to organise some online events and gatherings. So perhaps Perhaps that is something as well that, that will develop. So you know, just a few examples of using kind of WhatsApp alone. There's examples of organisations in the Ivory Coast creating daily WhatsApp blasts that are going out, kind of giving you like, you know, sort of your lowdown on what you need to know today. In, in Africa, there's a publication called The Continent, which is a WhatsApp newspaper. It, it has around sort of 8,000 uh, subscribers, or this was these were the figures in the summer, so this has probably grown. They had 8,000 subscribers in 48 countries, and these are really short stories, a couple of hundred words, you know, works specifically for consumption on WhatsApp and on mobile. And because WhatsApp doesn't just provide text services, you can also consume, you know, other me- media through it as well. You know, in Sao Paulo, we found an example of a daily whatsapp podcast that was being produced sort of seven or eight minute podcast so doing something that we're seeing lots of publications lots of journalists and news organizations doing around the world but very much specifically tailoring it for consumption on whatsapp and i think that's really really interesting and we've also seen examples of collaboration and innovation so for example in latin america there's been this creation of this entity called sentinella covid19 which has brought together 12 different organizations from different countries across latin america to investigate how the region is responding to covid19 and i think that examples of that kind of collaboration that we're seeing across newsrooms and across countries is incredibly healthy for the news ecosystem and for journalism. And I hope that that method of working together is something which continues well after the pandemic is consigned to history. So what do experts think needs to happen next? Here's Andy Lee Roth of Project Censored, who work with students at many universities around the United States on media freedom issues. We call for the Biden administration to stand up for journalists' rights here and abroad and the restoration of network neutrality, the restoring of Obama-era network neutrality rules that would classify broadband providers as common carriers is crucial. And then the biggest one, I think, is to to pass a bailout for journalism and to create a public option for journalism. So this economic downturn has devastated news media, especially local news media. And the idea is that a public option has been proposed by Victor Picard, who's a professor at Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania, to keep independent adversarial journalism alive, an investment of some $30 billion a year, which sounds like a huge amount of money, but that's less than the Pentagon, the U.S. Department of Defense spends on certain fighter planes. 
$30 billion a year would be enough to pay for a robust public media system. Another possibility, Craig Aaron has proposed, who's the, the leader of the media reform organization Free Press, has called for an emergency bailout of $5 billion to keep news organizations afloat with some $930 million going to federal appropriations for public media over the next two years. And the pandemic has exposed how dangerous misinformation, especially around the vaccine, can be. Media literacy is vital for our future, as Richard Sambrook explains. Part of the long-term thing is about media literacy. People need to think harder about what they can trust and why in a way they've never had to before. The onus on has switched from the producer to the consumer in deciding what to what's important to them and, and what they can trust and what's reliable. Um, and that's going to be a very long-term thing because actually we're not very good at media literacy and a lot of people talk about it as apple pie and motherhood. You know, it's not at the core of the educational curriculum. There are lots of little initiatives around media literacy, but nothing of any great substance. 